What's up, Lions of Liberty fans? You can now support this show on Patreon and get exclusive access to bonus audio and video content, including Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests, and so much more. Head on over to patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. Oh, yeah, who loves the sun? Who cares that it makes plants grow? This is Electric Liberty Land, your sunshine in Liberty Universe. Welcome, welcome. I am Brian McWilliams, and this is episode number 114, meaning you can find all of the show notes at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL114. And by the way, if you did not catch it, some of you might have been caught by surprise, but I highly recommend that you do check out the first episode of Do Nothing Man, which I ran last Tuesday to give you a sneak preview of the show that I'm going to be doing probably once every couple of weeks for people that are our Patreon supporters, our uh, Lions Pride, as we like to call them. And of course, you can join that at patreon.com forward slash Lions of Liberty. But uh, yeah, if you haven't listened to it yet, check it out. It's pretty funny exploring that, seeing how it's going to evolve. So make sure you give a listen. So for this episode, I'm going to be doing a wide-ranging show here because, I don't know, there's just like a million stories which have gone through. And uh, we'll do like a, just a little wraparound, like bam, 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 real quick, ninja style, popping out of ceilings, killing all your dictators, killing your shogun. How you like them, Apple Shogun? Anyhow, um, first things first, fairly amazing news could be on the horizon. And I say that because there's been a little bit of a teasing, a little bit of a maybeing going on in regards to House of Representatives stalwart, beacon for liberty, smiling guy who looks kind of like Josh Gad from the Frozen films who voiced the snowman. Yes, I'm talking about the one and only Justin Amash. Who said he would not rule out a run for the White House in 2020 as a libertarian, baby? Woo! (laughs) He said it's not on his radar, to be clear, but he did not say that he wasn't going to do it. To to, uh, to use the exact quote, he says, I would never rule anything out on uh, State of the Union, the CNN show, which uh, I guess is kind of one of the better ones. I, I don't know. I don't watch any of that crap. But he said this exact thing. It's not on my radar right now, but I think that it is important that we have someone in there who is presenting a vision for America that is different from what these two parties are presenting. Of course, Amash is the chairman of the House Liberty Caucus, representing libertarian-minded lawmakers. So that's pretty amazing. You know, I like the fact that he's not discounting the concept of it because you'd think if he was purely against it, he would say, "Eh, I'm not going to run against Trump. And I do think that You know, anybody that goes against Trump as a GOP candidate has no chance. You're not going to primary Trump. You know, let Bill Weld go and be the sacrificial lamb in regards to that. So they let him back in the Clinton compound. He can play tennis with Bill and Hillary and fly off to a pedophile island with Epstein there and have a a good old time. But 
for Amash to consider it raises a lot of questions and possibilities. I mean, if he did run as a libertarian, number one, I think he would be welcomed with open arms because Amash has been one of the more principled people that has been in government. And, you know, apart from maybe Ron Paul, has there ever been a congressman that has been more principled on liberty? I mean, Mike Lee's pretty good. Let's give him some credit. Uh, you know, but Amash has really stood up for a lot of the things that we believe in. He stands against uh, the war state. He stands against the spy state. He stands against uh, rampant empire building. He stands against overtaxation. He stands against, against a lot of the things that libertarians hold near and dear to themselves, uh, personal privacy, civil liberties, etc. And unlike Rand Paul, who I think has already ostracized enough of the libertarian community where he could not... I mean, I don't know. If he ran as a libertarian, I think most of us would probably say, okay, we'll lay down the spears and the slings and arrows for now and let let Randy Pants have a good shot. But Rand also is not going to go against Trump, at least not as a primary candidate. But you do have to wonder if Justin Amash says, okay, I'm going to run for president. I'm going to go for it in 2020. I'm going to run it on the libertarian ticket. I want Rand Paul to be my vice president. That's something I think Rand would consider. Because while clearly... Rand values his position of power in regards to the ear he has of Donald Trump. And he should. I mean, that is a very powerful position to be in. I think that all of the maneuvers that Donald Trump has tried to make in regards to pulling troops out of Syria, which looks like it's still going forward, by the way, the latest I'm hearing on that or reading on that, no one's calling me on my cell phone or fucking texting me in the middle of the night about it. But the latest I'm hearing on that is that they're going to pull out the thousands of troops that are there. They're going to leave some 200 troops to continue to, I don't know, foment hatred because <laughs> I don't know what else they're really doing there. Uh, you know, they're they, ostensibly they're supposed to be training, uh, continuing to train and oversee the people they've been working with there in regards to the rebels. But really, I don't see how staying in Syria with 200 people is going to really get you anything except training people to, <laughs> to take part in terrorist activities against the government that is still in power there and just cause more strife and hatred towards America. I don't get it. And Trump said to the Congress, wrote them a letter saying, okay, I agree with your assessment that we should leave 200 troops in Syria. I don't agree with that. Still horrible idea. Anywho, I give Rand credit for being the person who probably enticed him to take a look at another point of view and say, let's start bringing these troops up. Same thing with Afghanistan. You know, we're seeing Senator Paul put forward legislation. Well, she hasn't put it forward yet. He's promising to put forward legislation. This is on March 5th. He said, This week, I'm introducing legislation to end a war that should have ended long ago, the war in Afghanistan. The United States has been fighting the war on terror since October of 2001. It's cost $6 trillion. So that's great. Rand actually putting legislation on the table to bring him up. Great. Anyway, circling back to my main point. So you've got Rand who clearly has an in with Trump. Trump values his opinion, his point of view. So he's not going to go and run against Trump. It doesn't make sense for him. Number one, he already did it once. And it did not go well. Trump's uh, Trump's witty barbs about, about his pubic-looking hair wig did not uh, took Rand out of the race. Did not go over well. He plummeted in the polls as soon as Trump entered the race. So it doesn't make sense for him to run again. However, if you pair in a Mosh and a Paul, you've got somebody in Paul that could apply to the broader GOP base, especially the never Trumpers, because there's still got to be people within the GOP who do not like Trump, who do not buy into his vision. Plus, you've got Amash who brings all this principle. I mean, basically, you have got the ticket of principle right in front of you. You've got two people who really have been sticking to their guns for the most part. Again, Rand and Israel does piss me off quite a bit. But 
you know, he's been very, very much uh, better on that in trying to rein in the amount of money we're spending and giving to Israel. You know, the foreign aid is a big principle. He's been very outspoken against to anti-war issues and try to end these wars and try to curb spending. That's going to resonate with people. You pair that with Justin Amash and everything he's done, you have a very attractive ticket. Not only do you have people that are younger because they just had a poll come out recently that was, I think, a Gallup poll saying that the things that Americans hated most were, in order, old politicians and socialism, which I was shocked by. I guess it's just millennials that seem to be embracing socialism and the majority of America has still not gone completely retarded because you never go full retard. So you got these two people that are young, they're likable, they're dynamic, they're not afraid to speak their minds, they're not afraid to challenge the status quo in regards to the military-industrial complex and the way that America's been run, promising a ticket of, you know, basically building upon what Donald Trump wants to do, ending the wars, bringing the troops home, getting rid of regulations, lowering taxes, trying to foment a free market environment. And Rand already has some good ideas in regards to these tax-free zones where people can look at that kind of thing and they say, okay, well, they're not going full libertarian on us because that still scares most people. But we can take some of these concepts like these tax-free zones and try to put them in these, you know, under underprivileged, quote-unquote, underprivileged neighborhoods to try to get them to embrace entrepreneurship, to get government out of the way. And the beauty of that is if we can just prove that it works, then we can roll it out across the country. So you got that. You got these them drawing from the GOP side, plus all the independents who voted for Trump because they couldn't stand Hillary Clinton and what she did to Bernie, they may be more attracted to a Rand-Justin ticket. They may be more, you know, it just, even though I find Trump very entertaining, it's a no-brainer for me if there is a Rand Paul-Justin Amash ticket versus a Trump ticket. And I think a lot of people would fall into that camp. I think this is a legitimate shot. So I hope that Amash is taking this seriously. <laughs> I hope that the dream of this ticket will maintain in the back of all of our minds in the next uh, you know, year and a half that's upcoming leading into this next election season because it would be a hell of a thing, man. Okay. Next topic, let's move on. I mentioned Hillary Clinton, so I guess I might as well keep on talking about this broad. This broad over here. As I smoke my uh, my cigarette in the newsroom, my cabbie cap on. Uh, Hillary Clinton has said officially she is not running. Which I'm very disappointed in because, you know, honestly, well, two reasons. Number one, I had bought up all of America's burlap sacks anticipating a Hillary Clinton run. And I figured if she's going to run, she's going to need those outfits she loves so much. She's going to need those beautiful dyed burlap sack suit pants dresses that she likes to wear on stage for debates. So I'm going to corner the marketplace here and then I'm going to ratchet this shit up just like I have a whole line of suits that are just over, <laughs> overly baggy, overly wrinkled suits for Bernie Sanders. I bought all of the suits up in Vermont, in New York, in Connecticut, New Jersey. Bernie's screwed. He wants to get a wrinkled suit that's ill-fitting. He's got to come to me at Brian McWilliams' ill-fitting suit manufacturers and Emporium. Hillary Clinton just screwed me. She just cost me a lot of money because buying up that burlap, well, it's not that expensive. You know, burlap's really cheap. I was really anticipating her making a run. So sad to hear it, not only for the burlap aspect, but also because... If Hillary was running, it would have been delightful. Just to watch all the Democrats that formerly 
could not do enough to defend every shitty thing that she's done. All of the racist, uh, sexist, anti-gay policies that she and her husband, you know, minority uh, damaging, like the Three Strike Act, like all of the drug war ramping up that Bill Clinton did while he was in office, all of the warmongering that Hillary Clinton did while she was in, in office as Secretary of State, all of the, uh, the all of the underhanded Clinton Global Foundation money funneling that went on. And of course, we all know that the funding for the Clinton Global uh, Initiative dropped by some 80% as soon as she left as Secretary of State. So it would have been fantastic to see her come under fire from all those sniper bullets, from all these progressives that are running in the race that, that will jump on every possible progressive idiotic socialist platform that's introduced. And we'll see if that changes, because like I said, that new poll might change the way these people are coming out for uh, supporting socialist ideas. But you would then see what Donald Trump actually promised. If, you know, lock her up, that's where you might see the Democrats coming up and start cheering lock her up. You know, at the next Bernie rally, you're not telling me that you wouldn't see some lock me up chance if Hillary Clinton was still in the race, try to get her out of there for what she did to Bernie behind the scenes. It just would have been a three-wing circus. It would have been such a thing of beauty to watch. Oh, oh well. We'll just have to do, <laughs> make do with what we got here, people. But the good news is, at least, I'm sure these debates are going to start soon. And, uh, you know, if, if you were listening along, we did a lot of live tweeting of the debates. I made drinking games specific for each debate. We're going to start doing more of that again uh, because that's just a damn good time. But uh, rest in peace, President Hillary Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> we hardly knew ye. <laughs> or I guess, really, we knew you too well. Too well to let you run again. Too funny, though. Uh, let's move on. I'm just kind of flicking through here, guys. I'm literally like looking at 17 open tabs on my computer deciding what story I want to talk about next. Let's talk about the Democratic candidates uh, being told that they should sign what they're calling a non-aggression which, of course, is hilarious because clearly this pact has nothing to do with the libertarian ideals of the non-aggression principle. No, no, this is a non-aggression pact because, God forbid, the Democrats even consider anything non-aggression. I mean, the Democratic platform and every, every government platform, really, but especially the, the Democratic platform, platform, platform is based upon aggression. I mean, we're talking about people who force you at the point of a gun and consider it charity to give money to people that you don't know, don't care about, nothing to do with, as an ever-expanding basis, despite the fact that all the evidence says it doesn't work. You know, one of my favorite things to point out, I constantly do, is the poverty level staying the exact same despite a massive increase in welfare spending, or the education levels declining despite the fact that we spend more per, per student, more on schooling than any other nation anywhere in the world. And yet, where are the results? In the meantime, what else do the Democrats love to aggress on? Oh, well, there's things like forcing you to join a union. You know, that was very popular until recent legislation came through, giving people choice to not be forced into a union, which, of course, is just a strong-arm cronyist organization. How about forcing you to not have school choice? Forcing you into, uh, into a public school, otherwise you have to pay out of pocket, while still taking the taxes, of course, at the point of the gun. I mean, here in California, they're pushing to... Uh, to pull back even the amount of charter schools that we have. You know, they're fighting tooth and nail against the voucher system to give students choice, even though they see that this actually helps the state of education. 
We see in a lot of the, you know, malign neighborhoods that they like to talk about, the underprivileged neighborhoods, minority neighborhoods, that school vouchers and school choice actually help them to get a better education rather than informing them, you know, placing them in these schools in which you have apathetic children that may or may not care about it. Instead of giving the children that want to succeed or the parents that want their children to succeed the option of taking an initiative. No, no, no. God forbid we do something like that. How about um, segregation? Yeah, they were pretty aggressive in that because that was also democratically led. You know, when you had all these, all these infrastructure plans that were put into place, that was democratically led. And you know what ended up happening? They ended up segregating neighborhoods that were already integrated, creating the ghettos that we see today that foster even more division and even more segregation within populations. That was all the Democrats too. But no, no, none of that is targeted at stemming that type of government-led aggression. What they actually are talking about doing, and Democratic Party chairs in the four early presidential states are talking, they're trying to convince these candidates not to wage social media war or quote-unquote disinformation warfare against each other. <laughs> here's, the, here's the letter that they sent out, and this was, this was published in Politico. We would like your support in recommending the ASDC, the Association of State Democratic Committees, work towards developing a collaborative approach to battling disinformation, illicit campaign tactics, bots, troll farms, fake accounts, altered text, audio and video, any and all inauthentic speech in our presidential primary process, wrote the four chairs. So they want them to sign a, a pact, basically saying that they're going to be nice and they're not going to play dirty when they're going out there, despite the fact that, number one, we all know that politics is a dirty game to begin with. And, uh, and, and saying something like this is not going to actually work because they're going to have PACs that do their own thing. Even if, even if they pretend to do this, whatever this pact is laying out and stay on the straight and narrow, we know that behind the scenes, there's going to be shady dealings going on. I mean, Christ, we even saw that with the last libertarian presidential election, just within the, within the own party, you see all these dirty tricks going on behind the scenes. You know, Judd Weiss was talking about that. Just shady backstabbing, you know? So anyway, point being, no matter what they say, it's still going to happen. And also, I just can't get beyond the irony of them saying this after they've been, literally, look at the entire tenure of Donald Trump's presidency. You are seeing the most nonstop dirty acts of political aggression that I have ever witnessed. I mean, I was going to wait until after the jump to talk about the Cohen stuff, but, you know, I'll just bring it up because I don't want to go deep into it. I feel like it's been talked over. I also feel like there's nothing there, but... We're seeing Michael Cohen being, you know, put out there on stage at a congressional hearing. Never mind that the guy has already been arrested or indicted for perjury. He's going to jail for perjury himself by lying to Congress. And yet now that now that he's, he's no longer Trump's golden boy uh, scumbag attorney who was going to write a glowing book around him now they're bringing it back out, and now he can be believed, despite the fact that he's shown that he is a liar, professionally and in front of Congress. Now the Democrats are rolling him out there because they need to now have something else to try to attack Trump with, even though, again, there's nothing there. Nothing coming out about meetings at Trump Tower, which, by the way, why do they know about this meeting at Trump Tower? Oh, that's right, because they underhandedly hired a Fusion GPS by the Democratic Party, filtered through lawyers for the Democratic Party and Hillary Clinton to create a fake dossier for which they hired foreign agents to accumulate this, this ridiculous assessment of 
meetings and hooker peeings and everything else under the moon, which of course then was turned over to the FBI and used as a reason to surveil the Trump campaign. They'll say it was to surveil people that were around the Trump campaign, like Carter Page, who's still not in jail, and like, uh, God, I'm blanking on the other guy's name right now. But just people that had really done nothing wrong, that they had no evidence of any wrongdoing, and still have only been indicted for the simple procedural crimes, for lying to the FBI, for lying to Congress. None of this has anything to do with actual wrongdoing on the part of the Trump campaign or President Trump himself. So... We're seeing them try to promise to each other that now they're going to play nice during an ongoing investigation into the president of the United States that has absolutely no basis in reality, which is costing taxpayers millions upon millions of dollars to undertake. And I saw some figure that said the Mueller investigation alone, it cost something like $25 million. And that was as of last year in September. This was due to uh, PolitiFact. I just looked it up in the meantime. So PolitiFact saying $25 million have already been spent on this ridiculous investigation. And that, you know, probably has gone up at least two to three million by now. Who knows what it's going to end up being? And on top of this, the Democrats are now talking about introducing a whole new slew of investigations on the House level now that they control the House. So there's going to be a nonstop political game that they're playing at fucking taxpayer expense, which just makes me so goddamn angry about it. Playing these little parlor tricks. But no. Amongst themselves, let's make sure to sign a non-aggression pact because, you know, we don't want to be too underhanded and mean to each other. Half of me wonders also if this has something to do with Hillary Clinton completely undermining Bernie behind behind the Democratic backs. You know, the Democratic Party colluding. There's collusion for you. Colluding to, uh, to take Bernie out in advance. It doesn't spell that out, mind you, in this pact, but eh, maybe they're thinking ahead. The other thing I want to consider as well looking at this, is that I think this is also a preemptive tactic by the people who have entered the race. You know, we're talking about Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris. We're talking about Bernie Sanders. We're talking about Cory Booker. We're talking about Elizabeth Warren, right? These are the front runners. And of course, my favorite, if the Democrats were to have a candidate, would be Tulsi Gabbard, but she seems to have no chance. She's pulling at like 1%. She'll probably drop out sooner rather than later. But I also look at this as tactically, right? Follow with me here. They're already claiming that there have been social media posts and quote-unquote fake news targeting these four people on social media. And I wonder if this is in some way a pact design where these people sign it, right? And then they can say, well, none of us are doing any of these attacks on each other. So clearly it can't be anybody on the Democratic side. So it must be coming from, you guessed it, from Russia. To help Donald Trump. I mean, this is basically, they're trying to give themselves, if I'm right anyway, and maybe they're not this clever, but by signing this pact, they're giving themselves a get-out-of-jail-free card. Any sort of slander, any sort of uh, of news that breaks online on social media that's unfavorable, they can claim is fake news. That's being targeted at them and being fostered by these Russian troll farms in order to help Trump get an advantage or to turn the Democrats against each other in what would be a very clean campaign if they all had their way. And like I said, if they're doing that, very clever. And they can also, now that the front four are out there, they can also use this as a cudgel to attack any other people that come into the race by blaming them if social media posts come up or if they don't follow the same pact. Who knows if they'll even allow them to sign it? 
So you've got them basically cementing their positions and building a, uh, you know, a little, I'd say boys only club, but of course it's boys and girls, but uh, you know, a little, it's like a little country club that they're creating just for the front running Democrats in order to try to keep other people out and to give them ammunition to attack those people. Should anything pop up, doesn't have to be any evidence towards it, but if anything does pop up, that happens to be a negative Facebook ad, a negative Twitter uh, posting, any sort of fake news sites that pop up, well, they can just blame the other Democrats that are running and saying they're trying to take them down because they just don't have the numbers. How dare they? So we'll see if that actually happens to be any sort of, of uh, strategium that the Democrats are rolling out. All right, let's take a break. Be right back. We don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. Those epic words from Archilochus can sum up your ability to succeed or fail in business. I want to recommend Conversation Mat Time to our listeners as a way to hone your one-on-one conversation skills in a role-playing session that can help take you to the next level. During 25-minute sessions, you'll work through the best way to approach that raise, that interview, or that relationship with a practice professional that will provide the confidence and experience you need to get paid what you're worth or take that interpersonal risk you've never been able to conquer. Just like in jiu-jitsu, the difference between a novice and a black belt is mat time. Train to win. Visit conversationmattime.com and take advantage of a free 15-minute consultation just for listeners of this show. All right, welcome back to Electric Liberty Land 114. Again, lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL114 for all the show notes. Let's talk a little foreign policy here because a couple of different issues popped up and uh, I want to talk a little about those. I, like I said, I'm not really going to talk anymore about the Cohen stuff. I just, why? No point. So instead, let's talk about Trump and mean, meeting with uh, Kim Jong-un in Hanoi and what the fallout of that could be because... Interestingly enough, the last time Trump and Kim met, it seemed to be all lovey-dovey. They walked away. You know, it was a lot of great progress and this and that, and they're going to denuclearize and all things moving forward, and it's all very positive. This time, the reports are saying that they are walking away and that Trump basically said he would not remove any sanctions from North Korea until they have denuclearized, and he's walking away from the table. He's trying to spin that by saying, well, you know, the talks are ongoing, but... It seems that he's doing a little bit of tough negotiating tactic. Well, because of that, he's getting bipartisan support, which uh, is a little surprising. Maybe maybe the support's only bipartisan because he, in fact, is walking away and uh, and people want to keep this, this state of war going. But it was interesting, interesting to see Chuck Schumer saying, oh, well, I'd rather see him walk away from a bad deal than sign a good deal, which, of course, is just simple logic. From my point of view, I mean, I look at what's happening with Trump Kim here. Basically, Kim's already resigned himself to to giving these nukes up at some point. We're already seeing too much progress in regards to what they're doing moving forward. And you're seeing a revamping of how Kim is treating his legacy. Because clearly, while, you know, I have said long, many, many times on the show for a long time, if I was a nuclear power like North Korea, there's no way in hell I would be giving up my nukes. However, you know, looking at obviously places like Gaddafi, but in light of all of the economic factors at play here, in light of North Korea's ability to still just obliterate South Korea without using any sort of nuclear armament, by the way, 
just simple stationary guns in mountains, which is what they have got set up there, they can just shell soul to the ground. So considering that, I think that at this point, Donald Trump's tactics is probably right. He knows that Kim Jong-un wants to get this moving. He wants to get this done. He wants to bring North Korea into the modern century. He wants to continue to foster trade with South Korea. He wants to continue to broaden what his country can achieve under his rule. And I think that Kim probably saw the writing on the wall despite all of his horrible tactics. And he is an atrocious human being, by the way. Don't get me wrong. The man is a pure monster. But he's seeing that he reached a point where social media was coming too strong. The the proliferation of media elements, like all of the, you know, they say they credit South Korean soap operas, and I believe it, and other TV shows for creating a lot of the unrest within North Korea because they're seeing all of the lies of the North Korean government fall apart. The fact that they're saying, oh, we have it so good and they have it so bad and America's the devil and all this, that falls to pieces when you see Americans and, and South Koreans interacting. You see the largesse of the society. You see how wealthy they are. They see how just how tall they are because they actually have proper nutrition. And if you're not familiar with this factoid, South Koreans are something like eight inches taller than North Koreans just because they have access to better food and better nutrition. So Kim Jong-un sees the writing on the wall. And Trump, I think, realizes this at this point. So he's not going to give them any sanction relief. He's going to say, I'm going to be tough on him. I already, I already you know, dangled the carrot. Now I'm going to whack him with the stick a few times. In the meantime, South Korea is still pushing for this relationship to go forward. So despite the fact that Kim Jong-un met allegedly with Russia, either way, I think Russia is also going to say, you need to get rid of your nukes. Because hey, look, no matter what, when you have nuclear weapons, you don't want anybody else to have nuclear weapons. So Russia is going to still pressure North Korea to get rid of nuclear weapons regardless of who they're talking to. So fine. I don't mind him walking away. I would prefer him to walk away and say, well, we're going to keep the sanctions in place, but keep talking rather than rattling the saber again. And in fact, he went the opposite way, announcing unsolicited, so, so he claims, that he didn't tell Kim Jong-un in the meeting that they had that he was going to cancel all the joint military drills between South Korea and the United States in the near future, or I guess for the indefinite future. And that, again, shows you the negotiating tactics he's taking. He cracks him in the head with a stick, and then he says, but, hey, let me rub a little salve on that uh, on that boo-boo I just gave you. I don't want to continue to provocate any sort of uh, of ill will between our countries. I don't want to have any military interactions or accidents, especially looking to India and Pakistan, shooting each other's fucking jets down over there like a couple of kids, a couple of nutbag kids, a couple of nuclear nutbag children over there. And that also, by the way, I had it on the roster to cover, but it seems like in the past week, it's more or less diffused itself. It doesn't look like anything else is going to be continuing to escalate in that region. So fuck it. But... In regards to North Korea, things are going to keep progressing. And you see the Democrats saying, oh, there's no evidence that they're denuclearizing. Well, there is some evidence actually that they are. And this is going to be a long process. Clearly, you need to have, and I think you're going to have economic cooperation. You're going to have uh, the you know, cooperation across the borders. You're going to have opening of, of trade and opening of uh, visitation between these countries. That's what's going to push it over the edge to the point where they're going to feel confident in denuclearizing at that point. Because the economies are going to be intertwined. The people then, you know, Kim Jong-un is going to be looked upon as this man who opened up North Korea. 
And once he is the man that opened up North Korea, along with Trump and, uh, and, and Moon in South Korea, he now will have much more confidence that he's not going to get assassinated, that the United States is going to turn around and take him out or try to bomb anybody. Like I said, we wouldn't do it anyway because they still can launch artillery regardless of nukes to wipe out Seoul. But I think that's Kim Jong-un's vision, and that makes a lot of sense to me. So that is your North Korea update. Let's turn our attention towards Afghanistan. I already told you Rand Paul has got his plan to bring troops home, which he's going to announce. But there also is the Pentagon plan, which has, uh, you know, because they're, they're talking to Taliban right now about troop withdrawals. And, and by the way, I was just on a plane and I finally got around to watching War Machine, the Brad Pitt movie, which is based on a story that ran in Rolling Stone about General McChrystal, who took over and he was only in Afghanistan for about a year. But the movie paints him as, you know, a guy who went in there, wanted to do the right thing, which, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of these generals probably do want to do the right thing in their own moral universe. And of course, the moral universe of people who work in the army and, and are taking orders and, you know, that's got to be a different moral universe than the typical person lives in like you and I. That doesn't excuse a lot of the actions which are undertaken under the guise of military involvement, fighting for what's right, or being part of a global force for good. The Navy's phrase, which I'll never forget or forgive. But within the moral universe, he seemed to be a man who actually wanted to help more than hurt, who didn't want to throw people into Afghanistan willy-nilly, who actually cared for his troops, and also, above all, did actually care about Afghani people and trying to keep civilian casualties to a bare minimum at all costs. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. Uh, what ended up happening, of course, is you go in there and he sees the situation as it is. And, and you know, years ago, we were hearing these rumors of people. And I think he was there from 2009 to 2010, by the way. So before our podcast was, was going. But, you know, he had a very frank assessment. He goes, you know, we're, we're doing this, this insurgent combat here. And he goes, but the insurgents, he did this. There was one part of the movie where he did this math on a, a chalkboard. And he goes, here's the insurgent math. You kill one insurgent. You know, let's say he goes, you have, you have 10 insurgents, right? You kill two of them. So how many insurgents do you have? Right? That would be eight. He goes, but that's not the way it works. Because you till, kill these two insurgents. They now have friends and relatives that might have been on the fence about whether or not they want to fight the U.S. military occupying their country. Now, they just want to kill you. So instead of having eight insurgents, now you have 20 insurgents. And that was very observant. Now, his plan was to go in and continue to fight and continue to militaristically take over this country, which, of course, made no sense. And he had been the reason that America pushed to get 30,000 more troops in Afghanistan, along with 10,000 from our allies. And he went around the country or to other countries campaigning throughout the European uh, theater. But eventually got his 10,000 troops, by the way, from France and Germany. But point being, he was responsible for getting more troops in Afghanistan because he had his grand plan to make a push to take back this idiotic region that was hardly you know, sparsely populated and to, you know, to win the people over. And he wanted to have this grand plan in place. But in the meantime, he also undermined Obama because Obama basically ignored him while he was there. So he undermined him by, by talking to this journalist. He undermined him by doing an interview. I think it actually might've been with uh, CBS's Laura Logan. I have to fact check that, but basically just coming out and saying that, you know, this, this is a quagmire, you know, we're, we're fighting these people and they don't, Half of them don't want to be saved. And this is almost like an unwinnable war. And within a year, he was out. Replaced by someone else that's going to go in there. And, and of course, this is 10 years ago now. Well, this is nine years ago now. We've been there for 18 years. It's still ongoing. 
So anyway, check that movie out. I thought it was very entertaining. Um, I liked that. I actually ended up feeling for the guy, despite uh, you know, despite everything that I'm sure he he's done in the past, because he had come over from Iraq and, uh, and you know working there. So God knows what these people do. Anyway, long tangent to get back to the story about the Pentagon plan to pull U.S. troops out. So ongoing negotiations with the Taliban. And the plan is to pull U.S. troops out within five years. And right now, there's something like 14,000 troops in Afghanistan. They want to have half the troops leave within a matter of months. Great. Unfortunately, they want to have the other half stay as long as five years. And of course, as we've seen in the past, having troops stay over the next five years, what do we think is going to happen? Well, here's a guess, right? If we don't pull all the troops out now and just give the country back and say, look, your country, your problems, which by the way, should be our fucking philosophy dealing with every country, your country, your problems. But let's say we leave these 7,000 troops here. What do you think is going to happen? Well, there's still going to be some Al-Qaeda there. Maybe they're going to get some more territories back. Maybe they're going to start growing in numbers and size. Maybe they start getting a little bit more bold because we have the troops pulled out there. We now have less people in the areas, which by the way, they were still hated in Afghanistan. Absolutely hated. The troops that are there tell you that all of the soldiers that have guns, they just give up. As soon as the U.S. pulls out, the police forces that they trained in these regions that are either taken over by Al-Qaeda again or the Taliban instantly, they don't fight back. They don't try to maintain peace. They don't fight against these, these, uh, these mini warlords or these, these terrorists, as we would term them, these insurgents. No, they just say, look, man, I don't want to die. I'm raising a family here. Don't worry. You let me go. I let you go. Just, we, we, we'll pretend none of us have any guns. So, they, of course, they take these regions back. And once that happens, the United States is going to go, well, we're losing all the land that we took back and you know, the Taliban. Blah, blah, blah. So you're going to have the troops go, okay, well, we got to send troops back in there again. Fuck this peace negotiation. We're going to go back in there. We're going to keep fighting for another 18 fucking years. I guarantee you that's what's going to happen. I guarantee you by leaving half the troops there. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever to do it. So anyway, that's a clear prediction. And uh, <laughs> unless we see Rand Paul's uh, bill that he's putting forth, which, you know, I, I don't know the details of it yet. I wish I did on the show, but it, it's, it's just not out yet. But we'll see what he has proposed because it's got to be better than the Pentagon plan. And one thing that I had read from it is that he wants to say that we will declare victory in Afghanistan <laughs> and that every veteran would get a $2,500 bonus once the war is over. Can't say I'm a plan to that considering how much money was spent on the war. But I guess if that's going to be the thing that ends the war, then I guess you say, okay, what does it cost as far as how many trillions of dollars we've spent in this war versus a one-time payout to end it, to give uh, to give the GOP, to give all the senators voting on this bill some cover to say, well, we're doing it to take care of the troops. And, you know, we feel like we did our job over there. And it's, we're, you know, it's peace. And we're rewarding all these people for their hard work and their blood and sweat and tears in this absolutely meaningless war halfway across the world that has nothing to do with America. So if that's what it takes to get done, sure. Let's pretend that we won in Afghanistan. Because I can't think of the last time America could declare that we won a war. Maybe World War II is the last time you could even say that. (laughs) We definitely haven't won anything since then. Okay, two more things we'll wrap the show up on. Number one, two funnier things. The lighter side of life at the end of the podcast, people. Uh, first thing, very sad, but yet, I mean, it is, it's funny because it's so perverse and sickening in regards to just how low the government will sink, especially over in Germany. 
And you know, I'm not a big fan of the Germans, not a fan of their power policies, not a fan of their tax levels, not a fan of their hate crime legislation, not a fan of their fascist ways in which they undertake free speech. But I got to say, this tops it all. Because a German town sold a family's pug on eBay to cover unpaid taxes. Yes, they sold their pug. They went to their house, searched the house for valuables, and found out that this was a hybrid pug. So they stole it and sold it on eBay. I emphasize stole because, as we know, taxation is theft. But to steal someone's goddamn dog from them and sell it because of a tax burden? That is sick. So, what? long story short, what ended up happening is these people had a tax debt, and I'm trying to find how deep the debt was, and I can't find it. I'm looking at the story on the Daily Beast right now. But they they went in there. They said they sold the dog for $854 online. And they say, well, this was a perfectly legal This is a perfectly legal seizure. It only happens after the non-essential household goods have been taken. So they looked around for all of the other paintings and whatever else. And again, I really wish I knew how much these people owe. Because if it's something like $1,000 and they stole their, their pug, I'll be very upset. Well, more upset than I already am. But apparently also part of the story, they had seized the family pet. You know, they looked around. They, uh, they, they wanted to take the wheelchair of a disabled resident who lived there. But instead, they decided, well, instead of stealing the wheelchair from the disabled person, we're just going to take their dog. And so they'd allegedly pay the, pay the debts to the town, including a dog tax. Ah, so these Germans, you know, this, that German sense of humor, the irony. But this just shows you, this is, I mean, we're talking about inhuman acts. And we're talking about, you know, harking back to this non-aggression pact that Democrats signed. If there was a non-aggression principle pact that we could get these people to sign, including the German government, none of this would happen. Because this is a level of sickness where anything is justified. Just like we're looking at the late-term abortion sickness that has overtaken people where anything's justified to them because it's under the guise of the greater good. You know, oh, well, we got to protect all women's rights, so now we can murder babies. Well, this, well, we have to protect the rights of the town and the greater good. You know, we have to have our education system as a place, so now we have to take your dog and, uh, and we're going to sell it to somebody else. This dog that you've loved for God knows how long. We're going to take that, sell it online, because that $900 is clearly so vital to the town that it's worth destroying people's... I mean, look, you think I'm exaggerating when I say destroying people's lives. Trust me, if somebody came in here and took my dogs away and sold them to somebody else right now, my life would be destroyed. At least, I'd say, at least for a a year. I would be an emotional wreck. Because I love my fucking dogs, man. And for these scumbags to come in there, decide between taking a wheelchair and a family pug because of a small tax burden that is owed, instead of say, okay, why don't we say, you know, you give them some extension. Why don't you say, well, let's reach out and see if a local charity pay it for them. You know, maybe explore other options before you go in there and decide the most inhumane, heartless, and cruel way in which to collect a tax debt, which who knows if these people were even utilizing any of the services that were offered under those taxes. I mean, it's probably just basic property taxes that they owed. Which who knows if they can even pay or not. I don't even know. And if that case, if they can't pay their property taxes, well, you know, that just seems like it's more government intrusion on land that should be privately owned anyway. I don't see why cities even feel like they have a right to a property tax personally. But God, to take someone's dog, man, that is just cruel. 
Just cruel. All right, last story, and then I'm going to wrap it up as I also wrap up the tail end of this fucking cold. Hey, guys, a little edit here because I realized after I published this episode that I miscategorized Tom Woods' position on the rant you're about to hear. Tom Woods is actually for legalization, and it's only the cultural normalization of the topic that is about to be discussed, which he uh, has mixed feelings upon. So I do want to, uh, to correct that. Oh, God knows I don't want to be uh, completely miscategorizing the uh, the positions of a man who I do hold in high regard. So there's a little note for you guys, and uh, apologies to Tom. I'll also make a little fix to this before next week's episode uh, in case people downloaded it before I could make this little edit. All right, back to the show. Is to talk a little bit about Robert Kraft and prostitution. Now, you might have heard that the good news stemming from Robert Kraft, the Patriots owner, getting arrested trying to solicit, uh, I guess, a little rub and tug at this massage parlor, along with some other gentlemen. The good news is that Kamala Harris said that she would be for introducing legislation that would decriminalize prostitution, which I think is fantastic. Now, I may disagree with one Tom Woods on this fact, and I haven't read all of his arguments on it. Don't get me wrong. I read an email that he'd sent out briefly about it, and I know he is vehemently against decriminalizing prostitution, which to me doesn't make any sense if you're a libertarian. Uh, And I know Tom is a very principled libertarian, but this is one issue I cannot in any way agree with him on. Because he's saying that to decriminalize prostitution would somehow somehow liken it to to, uh, decriminalizing other sexual acts of which are, are more heinous. And to me, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And I, and I don't want to go too far down because I don't want to miscategorize Tom's point of view on the subject without diving into it. But he did send out a whole email about it. But just from a basic right standpoint, if we as libertarians are going to argue about whether or not you can have an abortion uh, at a certain point, period in time where there's a viable human fetus, you're telling me that we don't believe enough in a woman's right to control her own body to say that she can freely have sex with somebody if she wants to have sex with them for money? I don't understand how this is depraved in our society. And, and again, Tom's to take a, a short expert, excerpt from what his email is saying is to treat it like any other transaction as though it were you know, going and getting coffee. And then oh, I got, went to the FedEx and then I went to my prostitute and then I went home. He's somehow saying that this is like a, a indicator of a breakdown in society to, to normalize these things where other societies already have these things and they seem to be functioning just fine. Amsterdam, for instance, or even in France, where even though they might have rampant prostitution out in the streets, you know, out in the open, like they do in Germany or Amsterdam, they still have a society which doesn't operate in the same way our kind of puritanical valued American society does, wherein they value, okay, you know, we say it's got to be a, you know, a uh, monogamous relationship and a husband and wife. In France, they literally have an hour after work where people just go and fuck their paramours in a, in a back of a car or at a motel or whatever they want to do. Literally, they have an hour dedicated just to cheating on your spouse. Now, I'm not endorsing the, the act of you know going banging around people uh, behind your spouse's, spouse's back necessarily, but what business is it of Tom's if somebody wants to go to a prostitute, male or female, if they want to get some release and they don't consider themselves to be a horrible person for doing it? I mean, it, just because you have one particular moral persuasion, probably based in a strong religious background, doesn't mean that you are permitted to exercise your morals on top of everyone else in society. And that is simply what this is. 
When we get down to the basic act, what you're doing with your body, how is a sexual act using your body for labor, which if you're making money off, if you're electing to do this type of labor, you are engaging in labor with your body. So you should be able to own that labor, which you've, you've put forth. And just like somebody goes and toils away on a construction site, they pick a, pick a price for their labor and they sell it. And there you go. There's nothing wrong with that. You're simply using the tools at your disposal to make a living. And a lot of these people can make a very good living. It's also, with the advent of the internet and everything that comes along with it, become immensely safe for these people. Not only safer for the people, but safer for the people that go to these women of the evening or sex workers, however you want to refer to them. So for me, a big silver lining is, in fact, decriminalizing prostitution. We talk about victimless crimes. That's a victimless crime. Unless it's a very, very small situation where there might be sex trafficking, which, of course, if you decriminalize and legalize it, all that sex trafficking goes away. So much like the war on drugs, I object to anybody saying, oh, this is going to be the key to a downfall of society. We can't justify this. No, you're wrong. Fuck you. You can't be morally for ending the war on drugs based upon the reactions and the uh, the life-ruining instances that it has and the fallout from these things, which can range from anything from having a misdemeanor sex act, which is what Robert Kraft had, to getting caught with a minor, which you may or may not known as a minor, and having your life completely ruined because now you can't get a job, you're blacklisted from, from any number of, uh, of parks and libraries and whatever else, you're on a list, and you basically have to live in a tractor trailer because no one wants to rent to you. So... Please don't tell me. And, and, and that's not even getting into the, the actual, you know, sex workers themselves and them going to jail and having their lives just consistently ruined. So don't don't get on a high horse about this. If you're a libertarian and you are principled, you support decriminalizing prostitution. You support decriminalizing sex crime. I don't give a fuck if it normalizes an act of a man going to use a prostitute. That's none of your fucking business, what somebody does, what a private person does with another person in the privacy of their home. If they want to have a a monetary exchange, that's none of your business. And you cannot defend any number of the principles that we defend as libertarians without defending this one as well. makes you morally corrupt if you try to say that this one thing is outside the realm of what we would defend. Anyway, so again, that was the silver lining for me is, uh, is bringing this conversation to the forefront, I think is a great thing. Now, getting back to Robert Kraft, you know, I, the, the sick thing about his being arrested here was that this is all made possible. And they call it a sneak and peek warrant in which they put secret hidden cameras into brothels or into drug dens or wherever they want to go. They get a secret warrant to do it. You know, well, not secret. All warrants, I guess, are secret on some level. But the police get a warrant. They go in, secretly plant cameras in there which I don't know how they do that. If they break in in the middle of the night to when the parlor's closed or if they, I, I don't know how they, they do it. but they go in there, they put in secret cameras and they record every single person that goes into that business. And somehow this is legal because of what? The Patriot Act, which is of course hilarious because Robert Kraft is of course the owner of the Patriots. Not only is it hilarious because the Patriot Act enabled sneak and peek camera system, which is, of course, complete horseshit and an invasion of basic rights enabled by George W. Bush and the rest of the congressional pieces of shit after 9-11. But not only is it hilarious because it's the Patriot Act catching the Patriot's owner, 
But because if you're not a big football fan, you may not know that the Patriots are notorious for spying on other teams without their knowledge to gain advantages in the football games that they play. In fact, they spied upon my very own Philadelphia Eagles, and that definitely contributed to the loss in the Super Bowl back in, God, I can't remember what it was, 2013. So another level of hilarity is Robert Kraft of the Patriots getting caught with secret cameras. The irony is thick, my friends, but it doesn't mean that it's okay that it happened. So we'll see. Maybe Robert Kraft's high-profile case will shine another light. We'll get another silver lining out of this in which his lawyers will go after the abuses of this sneak-and-peek warrant, which is supposed to be designed to monitor terrorists, which, of course, now has been rolled out towards anything that they feel like using it on, like everything else in the Patriot Act. So, hey, theme of the day, silver linings. That and come on, Justin Amash, Libertarian Party 2020. All right, that's going to do it for today, guys. Reminder to listen to Mark Clare on Mondays with his in-depth interviews with leaders in the libertarian movement, including somebody that uh, I might have mentioned on this show. Don't want to give anything away, but somebody that I mentioned on the show today might be on the show soon. Anyway, so check out Mark Clare on Mondays. Don't forget John Odie Odermatt on Fridays with Felony Friday, looking at the ironically named criminal justice system and all the injustices that occur within it. And of course, make sure that you check out all of our Patreon Pride content. You can join us for just $5 and you will get access to shows like Degenerate Gamblers with me, Odie, and Rico shooting the shit. You'll get access to the brand new Legion of Liberty Doom which is, of course, myself, John Odermatt, Remzo Martinez, Howie Snowden, and Dan Smots. We are uh, rolling out a new episode of that soon. You will get the new episodes of Do Nothing Man as they become available to you. And you will also get shows like Conspiracy Corner. They just recorded a nice fresh one of that where the boys dive into conspiracy theories of the day on top of just bonus interviews and fun times. All right, that'll do it. So for me, Brian McWilliams from the Lions of Liberty and from Electric Liberty Land, always stay plugged into Liberty.